Welcome to For the Love Podcast with best-selling author Jen Hatmaker. Come on in and join us for a chat with Jen and friends about all the things we love. Now, here's Jen. Hey, everybody. It's me, Jen Hatmaker. Welcome to the show. This is For the Love Podcast, and I'm so grateful to host you this week, like every week, just absolutely love our listeners. And I absolutely love this series. I mean, there is so much good stuff in here, you guys. We are in a series called For the Love of New Beginnings. And we're sort of turning our eyes to a new year and goals and ideas we want to try or conversations we'd like to finally tackle, um, spaces we'd finally like to excavate. And today is just uh, a like on my enthusiasm level, because we are going to talk with Chris Hewartz. And so Chris is the writer, the author of the book called The Sacred Enneagram. So you guys, the Enneagram, uh, it feels like it's been all the rage lately. um, And it is, but it's actually been around for a really, really long time. Um, This sort of ancient teaching that talks about nine fundamental human character kind of archetypes. And so I ha- I'm kind of a newbie into the Enneagram world and I'm so here for it. Absolutely here for it. I am learning so much. Brandon and I are learning so much. In fact, we each have our own copy of Chris's book, um, The Sacred Enneagram. It's all, they're all marked up. We're learning about each other. Um, the Enneagram is just a fabulous, fabulous tool. So let me tell you about Chris. So he's an activist. He's been involved in uh, humanitarian relief and anti-trafficking stuff for two decades. Um, So in addition to his work as an Enneagram teacher, he's been, he's trained under some of the greatest. He's trained under um, Richard Rohr. He's learned with Mother Teresa, you guys. So we'll talk about all of that. Um, And so he was introduced to the Enneagram like almost 20 years ago when he was working in the slums of Cambodia. So that's how his story here started. And he has since become just a real expert in this space. And he's such a good guide, such a good teacher um, through the Enneagram and its paths back to health and wholeness. And um, he really, really believes that the Enneagram can help us get back to the heart of who, who we really are. So you guys, as we look toward this new year, right? We're seeking self-awareness and we want to strengthen our relationships and how we handle situations and our careers. And um, I think this conversation is going to be so enlightening, um, so useful. Even if this is your very first intro to the Enneagram, I'm so excited that you're here. I'd love for you to hear us talk about it um, for the next few minutes. And then we'll be sure to give you all the tools you need to sort of set on your own path if this feels like something you'd like to explore in your life. So Chris teaches workshops and leads retreats literally all around the world. So he and his darling wife, Felina, and their little puppy, Basil, who we end up talking about at the end. Um, so dear, so sweet. Um, they live in Omaha and he is just, he's a master. And I'm so thrilled that he's going to give the podcast an hour of his time and his expertise. And you guys, I'm telling you, this is a fascinating conversation. And no matter who you are or how you are, you are going to Here's some information today that is incredibly enlightening and useful. So thanks for joining today. And without any further ado, I bring you my really great conversation with Chris Hewartz. 
All right, Chris. I'm so so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being on the show. So happy to be with you. So this conversation with you is just incredibly timely. So first of all, in the podcast, we're in the, we're in the middle of a series called for the love of new beginnings. Um, and so it's just, it's the beginning of the year. We're all turning our, our attention toward goals or things we'd like to press into or work on or work towards. And so um, the Enneagram is such a wonderful tool. Um, if we really this year want to take our um, our emotional health seriously, our healing seriously, our relationships seriously, it's um, absolutely been It's been a revelation to my husband, Brandon, and I um, recently. So I know it feels like to some of us who are sort of new to the Enneagram discussion and model that this is some hot take right now, right? That it's very popular and we're hearing about it everywhere and people are obsessed with the Enneagram. But the truth is it's old, right? This is a, this has been around a really, really long time. So before we sort of drill in to a lot of specifics and ideas and what you have to teach us about the Enneagram for, for people who are listening and don't know, um, or for some who do, but would like to know more, can you just sort of high level for, for our listeners, what the Enneagram is, um, and what you know, or what you believe on how it got started? Sure. I think what the Enneagram and specifically the Enneagram of personality teaches us is that our personality is essentially our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. Dang. And so it's going to go right for the jugular, aren't you? Yeah. So it's going to start right there. So what that means is that we all have essentially spent a lifetime sort of building scaffolding around the projection of our ego mythology. And at a certain point, that 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 wears out, that that thins out, that's used up. And mm-hmm. at a certain point, when we're ready for it, I, I think what the enneagram shows us is is that we don't have to wear these masks, that we don't have to tell ourselves these lies, and and actually we can face our pain rather than resist our suffering, and and really begin to do the the dirty work of excavating essence. Right? Yeah, people have reduced this to a personality tool. And, and I'm afraid that we're, we're sort of missing the point if we think of it as a personality tool. Okay. It's, it's more than personality. It, it's getting to essence, but it's getting to the hidden essence. It's, it's getting to the lost essence. It's, it's helping mm-hmm. us sort of recognize the disconnect from our true selves. And, and so it's a, it's, I, I like to call it a sacred map. It, it shows us our way back mm-hmm. home, right? Mm-hmm. I like that because, you know, personality tests in general are sort of in vogue. And they run the risk of being it's they're so easy to access on the surface as just sort of this description that we can latch onto and um, superficially feel known or understood or even excused um, for our behavior. But it's it's what you're saying and what we're experiencing in the Enneagram and really the deep dive into it is exactly true. It's if, if you're willing, if you're willing to, to go, to do the work and to lean into it, it is so much more than an assessment. For um, sure. So much more. It, it's, it's almost spooky. Right. Because what, what it, what's beautiful about it, what's, 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 what's complicated about it is that it resists reductionism. It, mm. it doesn't sort of tether you to your foibles and quirks and eccentricities. And, and, and it doesn't actually, if you're, you know what you're doing with, with this teaching, it, it doesn't even sort of reduce you to caricatures, Right. It, it yeah, really shows right. the mystery of, of who you are, where you've come from and, and, and where you're going. And, uh, and so I love it. I, you know, you know, like 
15 years ago, those things called magic eye, those sort of pixelated <laughs> images that you just sure. force. You kind of unfocused and then you saw the picture. Right. I, I, I really think the Enneagram is sort of this magic eye of, of possibilities. Mm. Like when you finally sort of relax into um, your, 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 your belovedness, your, your beauty, what, what's fabulous about mm. you, all of the stuff starts to come forward. All of these things start to come out. And it, and it really is breathtaking. It really is remarkable. I think it catches a lot of us off guard. So. Oh, it's, um, it's, it's powerful is what it is. And I like what you said, because it, it will not be reduced and, and sort of built into it is a lot of grace and wisdom and even flex. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was when, when Brandon and I, my husband, when we first sort of put our finger on the Enneagram and, and started to try to find our place in it, it was, it was, it was sort of in the margins where it came clear for us. This is a little bit what you're saying. It was, it was in the, this is when we're disintegrating. And I went, Oh gosh, that is exact. I felt like I'd been spied on, you know, it was so, it was almost humiliating to hear my exact personality Mm. explained when I was healthy and when I was unhealthy and, and there's just, so it's not, it's not rigid. It's not rigid, but it does take you by the hand if you're willing and sort of lead it, lead you down a path to wholeness. How did you get started here? What's your, what's your path to the Enneagram work and study? Sure. So it it was about 20 years ago. I was in the slums in uh, Phnom Penh, Cambodia, visiting a friend who uh, does incredible humanitarian work there. And we were having lunch, um, my wife, Felina, and I, and, and his wife, his name is Craig Greenfield, and his wife, Nay. And at the end of lunch, he asked me, say, hey, mate, have you ever heard of this thing called the Enneagram? And as he began to describe it to me, I was just like, no, I did. This is totally made up. Uh, uh-huh. I don't believe in this. I couldn't shake it, though. And so I, yeah. I was flying back to, to the States. I, I, I laid, laid over in Los Angeles, was staying with a friend in Long Beach, got online, took every test I could, sent my buddy this sort of like averaged out spreadsheet of the results. And he's like, man, you're doing this wrong. And I was like, I think I, I think I'm close to sort of typing. And he shot me back a little question that really wasn't a question. And and in particular, it was sort of a a pointed statement about, did you relate to your mother like this? And do you still, and man, it, it wrecked me. I just thought, am I that obvious? Like, is this like, he just read your mail. Exactly. Whoa, it, it destroyed me. Mm-hmm. So that, that changed my mind quickly. Um, you know, there's a big blue book called the wisdom of the Enneagram by, uh, the late Don Riso and one of my teachers, uh, Russ Hudson. And, mm-hmm. and folks started to buy that for me. And, you know, I'd flip through it. And, and back then the sort of interspiritual language is a little bit too much for me. So okay. I returned that book, I think four times in six months before I <laughs> finally realized the fourth time somebody got it for me, like, I think this is finding its way to me. Uh Um, You know, I used it in in, in my former community. My wife and I spent 20 years in an international humanitarian organization, did a lot of anti-trafficking work, and and, and the work was hard. But, you know, what was harder often was staying together, was working things out in relationships and friendships. And and the deeper I got into this, the, the deeper I realized, like, hey, like, I understand why Naranjo made all these grad students sign this, this confidentiality statement that mm-hmm. they wouldn't teach this until they had done their own inner work, that they wouldn't mm-hmm. sort of pass this around until they were ready. Because look, once you figure out the nine types, once you sort of know mm-hmm. your way around the circle, it, it's easy to weaponize it. This is easy to mm-hmm. become the most interesting person at the dinner party. And uh, oh my God. it is a party trick, literally originally how it was using used. Um, it's funny that you say that because uh, the first time I ever sort of 
read about the Enneagram and then took the test just to see if, if that would help me sort of suss out my own space. Um, it, it was not 24 hours old. I mean, I'm telling you less than a day. And I, I'm like, Brandon, this is so fascinating. I really want you to take the test too. And he takes it. So um, I've come up as a really strong three. He comes up as a really strong two. And I'm telling you the next day. So I'm a 24 hour old Enneagrammer. And he says something to me that I didn't particularly care for. And in my mind, I was like, you know what? Classic two. Oh, man. Just classic too. I mean, I thought, oh yeah, this can, you can become like a real jerk um, with this in your hand when you're unpracticed, when you've actually not done any work at all. Um, and so I see exactly what you're saying. So speaking of the types, which you just alluded to, so I'm a three and a minute, I want to, I know what you are. I'd like to know what you and your wife, what your wife is too. So we can think about how you and I are going to relate to each other. Um, but before we sort of talk about our personal um, numbers, can you just sort of uh, give an overview to everybody listening on what the nine types are? And, and I know there's a lot of different ways to describe them, and there's different sort of um, you know practices that do it differently. You do it however you want. Sure. So, so my first teacher was uh, a Franciscan friar. His name is Father Richard Rohr. Lives down in Albuquerque, New yes. Mexico. And so, uh, so special to so many of and us. He's a sweet a sweet man and a confidant. He's, he's on my board. My wife is on his board and actually there right now with him for, for their board meetings. You know, how father Richard taught it was, was really how it was being passed quietly and secretly along, um, through that, that early group of Jesuits and, and how they taught it were, were through fundamental needs. Right. And, and so type one was the need to be perfect. Um, type two was the need to be needed. Type three, it was the need to succeed. Type four was the need to be unique. Type five was the need to understand. Type six, the need to be secure. Uh, type seven, the need to avoid pain. Type eight, the need to be against. And, and type nine, the need to avoid. And, and you know, when, when I heard it like that, I, I think it immediately made sense. And, and like I said, when you, you hear that, and, and really in that order, you, you probably find yourself in one or two or three of those, which sort of shows you how this is a color wheel, how these blend from one into the other. So when I, yeah. when I teach, I, I do a lot of work around object relations theory with sort of the childhood wounds, attachment theory, and I, and I help people sort of find their way into it in their earliest memories of themselves sort of coming forward in relationship to their protective and or nurturing caregiver or caregivers. Can you talk about that a little bit? Can you, can you sort of unpack what you mean by childhood wounds and, and how that's sort of your front door? Sure. So, so I actually, so I'm, I'm, I'm dominant in type eight. And uh, of mm -hmm. course, for those of us who are dominant type eight, everything is a little bit of a fight, you know, hassle, yes. sass and hustle are our love languages. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, you know, if you, you, you track with some of the stuff that I've done with the Enneagram, you can tell I'm sort of picking a fight with some of the traditional assumptions and, and my type's showing, our types are always showing. Um, yes. In particular, I, I, I do take issue with the language of childhood wounds because um, my sense is, is if you're, you're a good parent, um, you're doing your best and you're not wounding your children. Mm -hmm. um, if you were the firstborn and your parent or parents decided to, to have another child and you suddenly were no longer the, the sole um, recipient of their attention, that wasn't right. a wound. Like that was right. just a transition. But, you know, when we're little we don't have the psychological construct to accurately narrate our, our realities. And, mm -hmm. and so my sense is, is all of us have experienced variations and versions of, of, of the, of the traditional nine so-called childhood wounds, but there's one that we're more sensitive to. There's one that we, we really 
react against. There's one that hurts more than others. Mm-hmm. And, and what I think that is, is it's the confirmation bias of our type. It's the okay. confirmation bias that we were born to bring something into the world. And at a certain point, we lost touch with it. We lost contact with it. Like we, 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 we were introduced into the pain of humanity, that the world isn't fair, that just because you tell the truth, you're not going to get rewarded. Just because you work hard doesn't mean you're going to get ahead. And, mm-hmm. and, and trying to cope with, with, with suffering, trying to cope with the brokenness of humanity, we began to sort of double down on sort of convincing ourselves that, that those defense strategies and coping mechanisms were legitimate. So if there is a wound, my sense is, is that it's the impression of our caregiver or caregiver's shadow that we picked up on when we were little and we didn't know how to, how to process it. Mm-hmm. So then we began to tell ourselves that, um, that we were hurt and, and, and the way that we were hurt began to shape who we thought we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we began to act out of that pain. And so, you know, what that does is that, that, that fortifies what every Enneagram type has, which is uh, an emotional passion and a mental fixation. And, and you know, um, I, I've learned this from, from, from my, one of my teachers, Russ Hudson. He, he says something to the effect that when I am not centered, my heart is reactive and my mind is overactive. And that fixation is how my mind convinces my heart that that coping addiction is actually going to work. What are some of the unhealthy ways that that we both view who we are, um, and and how how do you think the enneagram can, can shine a light on that? Because it's, it's true. I, I mean, I'm 43, so I've told myself a story about who I am for a lot of years. Um, I've got decades of receipts. You know, like this this is obviously who I am. It's largely based on behavior, um, and so. Can you talk, I, I know this is just sort of a, it's a loose and general idea, but how does the Enneagram sort of laser into that spot and shine a light where it really could be dark? Right. So, so, you know, I, I, I think what's, what's, it's not sad. It's, or I'm sorry, it's not tragic, but it is sad. And this should elicit compassion from us. I, I think that this is true. Most of us don't know that we don't know who we are. And, and, and so we wear these masks and, and we allow masks to be put on us by society, by religion, by, by family. We, we allow ourselves to over-identify with, with some of the fragments that have laid claim to the whole of who we are. And, and so, you know, that's either our successes or our failures. That's our, our regrets or disappointments. That's, that's our accomplishments, our families, our, our, our vocational fidelity. But, but, but you know that's not who you are. And, and we all know that. And, and somehow... Because we're aware of that, we continue to sort of spin our wheels. We, we continue to wonder what's beyond. Um, I, I think the Enneagram mm-hmm. teaches us compassion for ourselves. I, I think the Enneagram actually helps us learn to love ourselves. And, and I'll say this, you know, like if, if we really don't love ourselves, if we really don't have compassion on ourselves, then man, we are, are toxic people because we, we totally. don't know how to love someone else. We don't know how to have compassion on someone else. And, and suddenly it's not safe to be human and it's not okay to be yourself. Mm-hmm. And you can't confess your deepest, darkest secrets and you can't struggle and you can't slip up. But look, the, the Enneagram shows us that with this mental fixation and this emotional passion, we're going to keep cycling back to the same mm-hmm. thing over and over in, in different That's ways. So and hopefully we can, can lessen the impact, the, the consequences of it 
I could listen to you talk about this for a thousand years. Everything you're saying is so true. I, when I sort of first uh, really began to try to be as truthful as I could about um, sort of my Enneagram type and came up really quickly and decisively a three, um, I, I, as I sort of read through that and began to try to understand what what makes a three a three? Um, it was a it was a little bit shame based, and I felt like this piece of my personality that I <laughs> that I tried to pretty much hide, um, or at least keep in check, or at least keep under wraps, or at least not display in full like glory. Um, that everybody had my number. I I just I'm reading through it going how do they, now everybody's going to know how gross I am, like way down deep in my, in my heart when I can be. And so it's interesting with a three, I don't, I'd love to hear your opinion on this because, um, I, my, my reaction to being one was really strange because, you know, it's sort of, if we're just going to do a quick label over it, which I, as you've noted, it's not necessarily the healthiest way um, to understand any of this, but it's, it's called the achiever. Um, and it's, you know, very ambitious and, um, what people think about me matters and success oriented. And it was interesting as a Christian because, and I think specifically as a Christian woman, I felt like upon reading the descriptions, I should have been a two. <laughs> I should have been right. That that felt like the right label to put on myself. Um, and so it's what's your what's your thought on? Because I, I really love your faith work that you apply to the Enneagram. It's uh, it's powerful. It's what it is. It's incredibly powerful. Brandon and I are using it as such a tool right now in our marriage. But um, what? Where would you say sometimes, or do you even see this? Maybe I'm making this up. Maybe this is just my experience. Do you ever see that Christians have a unique struggle um, with either being truthful enough to sort of sort out their own humanity, their own essence, um, or feeling inadequate for what they've been assigned, or do they even struggle with the Enneagram period? Is this, is it too, is it too spiritual for even Christians? What's your, what's your assessment, how this interacts the Christian community? Right. I think, um, Christians are becoming more comfortable with the teaching of the Enneagram right now, uh, where it's been really hard for them in the past because, you know, with the sort of esoteric roots and, and, and sort of like no clear biblical hinge to this, yes. they have to sort of do some workarounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, they're fine with math. And I've never seen like the multiplication tables in, in Holy scripture. That's true. So like, I think when you see something that's sort of a, a repeating pattern that you can observe and, and it essentially proves itself out in human experience, I, I think you're going to be okay. But look, here's, here's what's funny. Christians who are suspicious or skeptical of this, I, I, I encourage them, like, tap into your intelligence center, right? The Enneagram tells us mm-hmm. that we have these three centers, our, our body, our hearts, and our heads, our, yeah. our instincts, our feelings, and our thoughts. And, and actually, if you know what your intelligence center is, this is where you actually find the, the best material yeah. to practice discernment. Yeah. And so if you are confused about this or worried about this or are unsure about this, I actually think it gives you the tools to discern whether or not this is for you and this mm. is the right time for you. In terms of, you know, our, our religious sensibilities and, and what we come at and what we come to with, with what's taught in this, I, I do think that um, there is a lot of shame um, that religious people in particular experience yeah. here yeah. because, you know, each of the nine passions are, are traditional 
sins or they're the nine, they use the language of the nine capital sins. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that that first and foremost, your passion is a sin. I actually mm-hmm. think it's your best tool to get home. I think mm-hmm. it's, I like your writing on that. The little, uh, sort of, uh, keychain flashlight that you, you appeal to in the middle of a forest in, in mm-hmm. the middle of the night. Look, it's, it's, it's completely inadequate. It's not going to get you home. It right. can't do the tool, but it's, it's what we start with. Yes. Now, now, I think when Christians sort of see that hit list of, of passions and, and, and the, the sin language ascribed to them. Exactly. You're right. A lot of us feel shame and a lot of us feel exposed. And, uh-huh. That's what and it it's was. because we don't know what to do with our humanity. Yeah. We, we don't know um, how, to, how to actually relate to what's flawed in us. But, but the truth is, 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 is our flaws and our imperfections are actually perfect. We need them to find our way home. Yes. Uh, this is where um, the Enneagram fills in a gap for me. I, mm. I, I mean, I can tell you that I certainly, I was never really taught um, what to do with my flaws, except except for feel ashamed about them. That that yeah. was my, that was the tool handed to me, like feel bad about this. And I did. And so to see them, you know, sort of written out in such absolute clear language in the Enneagram was a a little bit shocking. Um, and, but notably, uh, specifically with your work and I, I love reading your book. We're going to talk about it next. Uh, it's, it's absent of shame. It's, there's so much grace and compassion built into the, into your teaching, um, into the work, which that is to me where the road forks in a really good and a positive way. And it's, um, everything is nuanced and everything, ultimately can be a tool. Um, even sort of our shadow side and, and where we go when we're disintegrating can still, those are still markers that can lead us back to wholeness and to health. And so I think at the end of the day, if initially I felt exposed, um, I still do, to be honest with you, in a lot of ways, um, by the Enneagram, if, I think after a little bit more time with it, it's hopeful. It feels really, really hopeful. Hey guys, just a quick break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just want to tell you one quick little offer um, that our friends over at audible.com have for you, my listeners. So this is what Audible's offering you, a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Just to give you the chance to check out their services if you don't already love them. They're amazing. Um, you're going to love Audible. You can get a free audiobook just for trying it out. You can check out my books over there. If you want them, I recorded them both myself. It's like me reading to you. You could listen to the last one, which is for the love or the latest one, which is of mess and moxie. And if not those, there are so many other titles available over there. Um, and you could listen to any one of them for free. So here's what you do to download your free audiobook today. You just go to audibletrial.com backslash hatmaker. That's simple. Audible trial dot com backslash hatmaker for your free audiobook. Hope you love it. Let's talk about your book. So your book is called The Sacred Enneagram. Um, let's just start with that. Why do you believe the Enneagram is sacred in the first place? Um, how can people achieve this this deep place with it in their in their spiritual lives? So one of my one of my teachers, Russ Russ Hudson, um, who wrote the, the Wisdom of the Enneagram, he sometimes says that the Enneagram is less about nine types of people and more about nine paths back to God. And hmm, and I, like I really that. I re- that really bent my brain when I first heard that. And uh, so I, I spent several years trying to understand that. Like, 
what are these paths to God? What are these paths home? What does this journey to, to divine love look like? And, um, and, and so the work that I did, I, I spent several years trying to develop this, this overlay that essentially said, if, if you know your type, then you know your type's intelligence center, right? Your, your, your instincts, your feelings, or your thoughts. And, and our instincts and our feelings and our thoughts actually show us our intelligence center actually shows us our most accessible emotion, right? So if you're in a body type, that's frustration or anger. If you're a heart type, right, the body types are eight, nine, and one. If you're a heart type, two, threes, and fours, that's guilt or shame. And if you're a head type, five, six, or seven, that's anxiety or distress. And, and, and so we know that we feel that that's the static noise in the back of our heads. That's the sort of muscle memory of, of how we get through our days. And, and so I took these, these centers and I overlaid them with contemplative prayer postures, either solitude, yes. silence, or stillness, and really suggested that solitude um, is is where we have to go if we're in our heart. That if you're dominant in type two, you 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 cannot give yourself away to find yourself. You have to go mm-hmm. inward to see your beauty. If you're dominant type three, you you can't show everyone their value and ascribe value to everybody else's lives without entering the emptiness of your own heart in solitude and seeing that you're valuable. And, and if you're dominant type four, that, that solitude is really an invitation to sort of see what's significant about yourself for yourself rather than needing it to be validated. You know, if you're, you're in your head, you're five, six or seven, I, I suggested that silence is, is really the remedy to, to, to all the noise, right? If you're dominant type five, you need to turn down the noise of trying to get to the mm-hmm. bottom of every question. If you're six, you need to turn down the noise and, and stop threat forecasting. And if you're seven, you need to turn down the noise so that you can be present and, and not mm-hmm. sort of thinking about what's next. And, and then if you're in your body, these eight, nine and ones, it was really mm-hmm. stillness, right? And that was for the eights to, to stop fighting, with themselves, mm-hmm. with each other, for justice, the nines, to stop arbitrating and, and reconciling the yeah. external world so that they could actually face the, the stillness of, of what's not being reconciled internally. And then if it was a one, it was the stillness of, of just stopping, stopping fixing themselves and, and, and every, everything else. And so I, I felt like that really added up. Now, when I do that, of course, like there's there's obvious objections. And so if I tell folks who are dominant type nine, that, that stillness is the contemplative posture for their inner work. Nines are like, awesome, man. I'm already chilled out. I'm already, I'm totally. already opted out. So you get a rest in, in silence. And I feel like when I put those postures and mindfulness intentions and came up with that sort of nine unique combination, it just, it, it just resonated. And, and I think it just keeps mm. resonating. And, and I think it's a gentle, it's a gentle path. It's, Hey, the contem- contemplative spirituality can, can, can be, intimidated we need we need people to demystify it and i'm like so here's an easy start right yes i love this so much because i mean it's it will not be a surprise to you um as a person who's a three but i'm not contemplative Hmm. i struggle with introspection Hmm. um i'm a i'm a doer i live outside of my self um i'm i'm achieving all the time and so when i read that path for me toward wholeness. I know it's right because I, uh, I'm defensive against it <laughs> because I, I automatically know, Oh, that is work for me. I, that is not natural. Um, that's not what I naturally reach for. That's not easy for me. Um, and what I think what I appreciate the most about your approach, um, is that typically 
when you reduce something like the Enneagram or any of the others to a personality assessment, a lot of the instruction on the back end of it is it feels like behavior modification. You know, these are work, these new systems into your life, or here is a script for you to start practicing within your, your relationships or whatever it is. And it feels like all these just more work, more external work to do that really just changes what I'm saying. It doesn't really change my heart. And this one is the exact opposite. It is quiet and it is inward and it is it is private. And, um, which is it to me, it makes so much spiritual sense. Mm. That's where God does his best work with any of us truly. Um, but it, why is it so hard? Like it's, you're so right. It's a gentle path. You have laid a gentle path down for us. And I still find it so incredibly challenging to, I don't know if it's, I don't know what well, it is. It's all it's our really. resistances. And, and, and honestly, we know this at that our resistance to our suffering just causes more suffering. Our resistance yes. is, is I think, triggered in a, in a contemplative practice. And, and so I usually say this, if you know your Enneagram type, then you'll, you'll know your intelligence center. When you, when you begin your inner work, when you give yourself to a practice, it will trigger that most accessible emotion. So that guilt or shame, I'm, I'm not good at this, I'm doing this wrong, I'm beating right. myself up, that anxiety or distress, like... What, what's in there? Do I, am I really ready for this? Or, or that frustration or anger, like this isn't happening fast enough. I'm, I'm not seeing the, the fruit. I, I think when you experience those, those sort of somatic resistances, like that's enough. That's the invitation to sort of listen to what they're telling you. I, I also mm-hmm. think that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're right. Like for three, it's, it's this, uh, look, this is hard for us in nine different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's great. For point. three in particular, it can be really hard, right? The three mm-hmm. is right there in the middle of the heart center, right? And, and, yes. and if you look at the, the drawing and if you can see it as a color wheel, then you see that the wings, right? The numbers on either side. Yeah. Are two and a four. And you know what? Those are both also in your heart center. Exactly. You don't have, I'm all yeah, you don't, Yep. Well, you, you, in in one way, you're all heart, but in another way, your heart's unaccountable because you don't have a reach outside it. You don't have sort of the the clarity of a, of an alternative perspective. And so what they say about the three, the six and the nine, which are the three types that are in the center or the middle of their intelligence centers is that they're the most disconnected from their centers. And so the three, you know, this is this 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 should bring such compassion forward for for everyone who 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 knows a three or somebody dominant in type three, and this should bring compassionate self love forward if you are dominant in type three. The three is the most disconnected from their heart, mm. and and this is a sort of confirmation bias of of the inadequacy of imperfect holding environments as children. Mm. Look, it's it's not that your your parent parents were terrible. In fact, I imagine they were incredible, mm. and. I imagine that they did their best, but they couldn't love you perfectly. And we also have to know this. We couldn't receive love perfectly. Yeah. And so little kids who are dominant type three had this, this confusion. They, they attached to the nurturing caregiver as a way of trying to feel their own heart. And, and, and they, and they became sort of, um, they relied on that external sort of nurturing energy to say, you, you, you have this, you can feel it. It's just a reach for you. Mm-hmm. Well, how little kids who are dominant type three then grew up was 
how do I feel my heart? I just want to be loved. I, I mm. just want to be seen. Yeah, that's true. And, and I don't know how to feel my heart, but I'll tell you what, when I am seen, when I am acknowledged, when I am affirmed, mm-hmm. it feels pretty good. Right. And if it feels pretty good, then that might be my heart. That feeling might be my heart. And, and so threes chase that. They chase the, the accolades. They chase the attention. They chase the rewards. And, and they're yeah. only doing this to, to feel love. The thing is, is they're smart enough. They're smart enough to know that that's not real love. That, in fact, when you're bad at something, when you fail in something, and you can press into your inner solitude and still see your value, then you know what love is. Mm. And, and so it, it it causes these aches in us. And, and and like I said, these aches really lead, I think, to to deep compassion. They have to. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I'm. I'm in a trance listening to you talk. I feel like everybody's getting to listen in on my therapy session. Um, when I, I'm right behind a three for me, just just a couple of points down as a nine. Um, and when I when I read that description as well, I do see that when I am feeling um, unworthy or overwhelmed, or when I'm just when I'm not operating out of a healthy space, those are my behaviors. I go quiet. I go still. I I withdraw and I've for some time I've got this piece in me that I don't even, I cannot believe I'm just saying this on my podcast as if we're just having a private conversation, but I'm a withholder Mm. and, and this is a tool that's helping me understand that a little bit. And, um, cause it's just been a source of shame for me. Like, why do I do that? I'm like, I feel like in my core, I, I'm, I want to love and I want to serve well. And then the minute I start getting disintegrated, I clam up and withdraw and withhold. So it's um, as hard as it is to admit that and to to read it so plainly, it's also helping me right now. It's helping yeah. me learn what to do with those feelings and that those are like their little little flag waving for me saying, hey, <laughs> hi, this is, how, this is where we're at right now. How do we get back? How do we get back to health? Um, what, you're an eight. And what's your wife? I'm interested about, I'm interested in talking about this because this is incredibly useful in a marriage or in an important relationship. Um, you know, how we relate to one another and what it teaches us about our spouse or about our partner. Um, what are, what are you, you're an eight and Felina? Felina is, is dominant in type two. Okay. And so so how does that, how does that play out in your yeah, marriage? So that's, that, that can be good and bad. If, if you know much about these types, right? The two is sometimes called the helper or the giver. Yeah. The eight is sometimes called the, the challenger. I like to, to refer to the eight as the contrarian. Uh, yes. The two's sort of inadequate holding environments were, were really this, this feeling of rejection uh, around the protective caregiver. Now, now the two is, is, is really this, this essence of, of love, this, this, this open armed sort of, this, it's just, they're, they're safe, they're kind, they're compassionate, right? Mm-hmm. They, they know everybody's feelings and emotions before we even do. And they, they know instinctively and intuitively how to love us and, and what to give to us. As little kids, folks who are dominant type two just wanted that protective caregiver to, to mirror that nurturing mm-hmm. love that they were offering. The problem is, is a protective caregiver is only going to protect and, and so a little, little too couldn't realize that that was confusing for them. And it felt like rejection. And, and so that ache of rejection then caused little twos to, to double down on that nurturing stance and to, and to really run with it and lead with it. Mm-hmm. Now, eights were also rejection types and rejection types around the mm-hmm. other parent or caregiver. And that was ah. the nurturing parent. So, you know, I, 
my mom was was 19 when she got pregnant with me. I was the the firstborn. She, my mom, I think is also dominant type two, and she just uh-huh. loved me so much, and she just smothered me and cared for yeah. me. But you know, the basic fear of the eight is is really of not being in control, and it, and if and if I feel too smothered or too controlled, uh-huh. I resist. I and so even in my childhood, I, I I look at this pattern. I resist that nurturing reach towards yeah. me. And and so my poor mom, right? This helps us heal our relationships with our, our folks. Um, caused me to double down and 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 double down on this protective stance. I see. So eights and twos, we're looking for someone to protect and looking for someone to nurture. And eights don't nurture themselves well, so mm. we we need that help. And twos mm-hmm. don't protect themselves well. Right. They're, they're always giving themselves away at their expense, so they need to be yep. protected. So it can be really healthy or it can lead to really toxic fusion. Um, so, you know, you just have to watch that. You have to sort of watch your patterns. You have to watch how you're enabling each other. Um, but, you know, there's a resonance. Like, like we, we, um, we understand that, that you know, I, I, I think the Enneagram has helped us at least come to terms with those sort of quiet, quiet sort of memories and feelings of rejection. And and so when we can find ourselves really in each other's embrace, there's, there's a deep acceptance there. And that's the safety that allows us to be free to bring the good and the bad of ourselves forward. I love that. There's, uh, there's frankly, there's always an upside to every type, to every combination. Um, There's the health is always possible. So I love that because uh, as you've mentioned, none of these are better or worse, or one is more right or more wrong. Um, That that doesn't exist here. There's something very beautiful that every single type of person brings to bear um, on the earth and can bring to bear in any given relationship. And so, um, Again, for me, that goes back to the hopefulness of it all, that nobody is doomed. Absolutely nobody. Um, even if our shadow sides are dark, well, there's a dark side to every single every single type. Um, so I, I love that no matter who you are or who you're married to or what kind of kid you're parenting, or there's always something really beautiful. There's always a path to beauty um, and to, to health and to wholeness. What would you say? Um, so I'm a three. And I'm married to a, a two. And so when we read about that combination, <laughs> it's creepy. It's creepy how well it describes us, um, both what's great about our marriage and also the same exact places that have always rubbed, that they have rubbed since the beginning. And when we are kind of, when we're off or when we're wobbly, I mean, I can just, I can guarantee you that's going to be, we're going to circle the drain around those exact spots again. Like how would you, um, how would you talk to a three girl married to a two guy? Yeah. So, so there's, there's some real gifts in that. And, 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 and first the, the, the first obvious gift in that is, is just the, the being freed into who you are in the, the environment and in the community and, and probably even in the religious space where you've been socialized. Because like you said, like to, to be a, a female dominant type three and, and really driven and really successful, like you, you may feel like you've been, there's this assumption that you can't be all of yourself, that you can't bring all of this forward, that you actually have to hold some of this back and, 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 and play into these sort of dated religious gender roles that are really unhelpful. And the same That's right. for, for a man who's dominant in type two, that, that in North America is, is, is maybe the hardest type for a, a man to have permission to be because it is 
such a, a nurturing embrace and a, and a, and a, and, and, and a sensitive soul, but look, it's, 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 it's strong in its determination and in its will that the clarity of a, a centered two is, is really, um, maybe one of the most powerful people around the Enneagram circle. So I would say, first of all, like the, the real gift in, in, in a healthy relationship between a, a male two and a female three is the affirmation that it's okay to be you. Um, mm. Again, in this relationship, um, a, a two, married to a three, is is really going to be the, the, the support that that three needs to um, touch their own feelings and emotions, to actually know that they're real and, and, and can be trusted. Because the two believes their feelings. The, the yeah. true is led by their feelings. Like, That's so true. Look, one of my little sisters, I think, is dominant type two. And I remember when I was uh, younger, adults told her, hey, don't trust your feelings. But it's like, ah. hey, this is her intelligence center. And her Lovely. feelings are going to tell her something that her head or her instincts can't. And so the two knows that. If the three is distrustful of them, the, the two can, can be a huge support for you in that. It's no. true. I, I can't tell you how many times um, he has said and I have said about him that I think nothing in the whole world can make my husband happier than if I just talked about my feelings all day long. That's what he that's how he wants to live. He wants to live and say all the feelings. And what's interesting is I have feelings, but I, I they're in my head. I don't say them and I struggle to say them. This is why I told you I, I, I see within me something that withdraws or withholds um, like a nine. And, and so I told my husband too, how I experience him a lot is his sort of disintegration path as an eight. So I experience him as an eight a lot. Um, but at his like absolute core, he's a two. So it, these are again, helpful, helpful, helpful tools. Um, because sometimes I think you're just being mean <laughs> and he you're just, you're withholding to punish me and neither is true. Well, we're just, we're just afraid. All of us are, are afraid. Like, I, I don't know at what point in our lives we feel like we finally grow up and become the adult that matches our age. I, I think most of us are still a version of a, of a, of an inner child wondering like, am I getting this right? Am I doing this right? Am I going to be okay? And, and I think mm. why we do this is because we're, we're afraid that it's not okay to be myself or I, yes. I'm not allowed to, to, to live into this. And, and so again, with a, a two, three in a relationship, you know, your fears are, are going to be really different, but, but you're going to understand them because these fears are also rooted in, in your hearts. And, and his fear may be that he's not loved for who he is, but what he yeah. gives. Yeah. And, and your fear may be that you're not loved for who you are, but, but what you do. Yeah. And, and, and you're going to be able to sort of tell each other the truth about the lies around those fears. And so again, in a, in a two, three relationship, to be able to tell each other the truth that, you know what, your, your husband is lovable. And in fact, the most lovable of the nine types, your, your husband mm-hmm. will show us how to love. He just needs to be honest with what he needs and, and not take what we'll give him. Um, mm-hmm. Because that's how the two that's quietly good. suffers. Like, well, they, they're doing their best. Well, well, no, we're not yeah. doing our best. We don't know. So show us, yeah. tell us, help us. We need you to. And, and then the three, like your, your, your husband can, can, can constantly remind you that um, you're, you're better than, than your worst mistake. And you don't have to be afraid of, of allowing those fragments to lay claim to, to the whole of who you are. And so for folks who are dominant type three, I just say, you know, how you find the, the sense of humor with your own shadow is doing things that you're yes. bad at. Just start ah, something nice. that you're going to fail and, uh, and, 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 and find the humor in it. Like be okay with it, uh, you know? 
That's such great advice. Um, so for people listening, if, if they're brand new here, we're talking about words and ideas they've never even heard. And they're maybe they're interested in, in taking the Enneagram or starting their exploration. Um, how would you how would you encourage them to let's just say approach the the online test in order to get sort of the best most authentic results how would you how would you Um, so there's there's a number of ways to to sort of bring your type forward and and i'll and i'll say this at the very beginning i'll I'll caution people to type anyone including your children um yeah i appreciated your instruction on that because i was already i've seen a lot of folks who are grown up who had been typed as children realize in their 20s and 30s that they were the type that their parent or parents put on them and it was devastating and it led to real existential sort of crisis of identity. So don't type your kids. Um, if you want to okay. use this for parenting, then then learn about your type and parent out of the yeah. health of you at your best. Um, yes. Don't type your friends. Like don't try to correct somebody who you think has been mistyped. This is really a mm. sacred rites of passage. This is coming to terms with yeah. your essence. And and look, I, I, I'm not an any evangelist. I, I don't think everybody needs to go out and figure yeah. this out right now. I, I think it'll find you right on time. I think it'll find you when you need it and when you're ready for it. Yeah. When you are ready for it, um, you know, the, the easiest sort of accessible way to, to bring type forward is, is through a variety of, of online tests. Um, I think the Red Tea out of the Enneagram Institute is probably the best one um, just because it's time tested. And, and I think it um, has a lot of, a lot of, um, it's been proven out pretty well. Mm-hmm. The thing yeah. is, is most of the tests online are they bum me out super hard because they're asking Do they? they're, they're asking personality questions, like because they're backloaded with inherent racial cultural bias. Uh, you have to be careful with some of those. Of course, don't test the test. Don't test how you want to be, how you want to be sure. perceived. Um, just test who you who you really believe yourself. Um, who you think you are and, and, and it should come yeah. forward. If that doesn't work, then, you know, usually what they say is get online or pick up a book and read the thick descriptions of each of the nine types. And, yeah. and if you're honest, I, I think one will be a mirror right back to your soul. Yeah, that's um, absolutely true for me. I, I could have not taken the test and still found my space for yeah, sure. And, and that's, and look, that requires some, some, um, you know, I say this, if I don't say this a hundred times, I haven't said it enough, that if we can't self-observe, we can't self-correct. And that takes the mm-hmm. the, the, the courage to be truthful and self-observation. I, I can't agree more because um, I've heard, I, I've got good friends who love the Enneagram and they've been, you know, yammering about it in my ears, literally for years, years and years and years. My good friend, Shauna Nequist, she loves the Enneagram and, you know, she's been talking to me about it for years and it's just been this year that for whatever reason, it felt time. And my husband, Brandon, and I right now uh, simultaneously are kind of on a healing path for other reasons. And so we're right now, we are doing the work of health. And so all of a sudden, here comes the Enneagram in the middle of this addition, this other work we're doing. And it just, it's so uh, timely hmm. and it's so useful and it's, it's, it builds in almost an insta compassion for one another, almost instant. Like right away, I can kind of see not only why he does what he does, but why I do what I do. And it's, it's there's a bit of a kindness toward yourself um, and toward the people that you love. And so I, I think you're just so right um, that it'll find you when it finds you. Before we kind of wrap the show, one thing that's just, I, I think you've, you're a really 
you're so wise and you're so good in this area. I, I really want everybody to read your book because it's such a, it's a kind guide through all of this material and um, sort of healing paths of contemplation. It's really, really beautiful. Um, and at least part of your, um, just your presence and who you are comes from being mentored by, I mean, you've had amazing spiritual teachers. Um, you've obviously talked about Richard Rohr, who's so special in our time. We're so lucky to share the planet with him. And, but you also, you worked with mother Teresa. So what in the world can, <laughs> can you talk about working with mother Teresa? Like, yeah. what was that? I, um, I was a boy. I, I did not realize, um, the access I had. And, and, you know, I probably only sat with her a dozen or, or 15 times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course the things that, that she shared were, were so simple, but because of the credibility of how she embodied that, it was, it was profound. Um, you know, she was, you know, uh, if you were, you know, I lived in India for a few years. I lived in the South working with kids with HIV and AIDS. And so I'd go up to Calcutta three or four times a year and whenever she was around, she was was available. She was accessible. I mean, just mm. purely humble, just purely kind-hearted. Yes. Um, you know, she gave me all of these little trinkets, these Mary medallions and crucifixes, mm. and she signed this little prayer for me. And, you know, I was, like I said, I was a kid. I was in my early to mid-20s, and I, I didn't have a scope of, of who she was. So I gave a lot of that stuff to my mom, and I've lost a lot of that stuff. And when I go home and I see that sort of little note from her, on my mom's wall, I'm like, uh, that, that's mine. <laughs> I want that back now. Um, but you know, like, I mean, she, um, she was, she was fierce. Like and on one hand, you would see her holding, um, a, a half starved child or, or carrying a, a man who's dying from tuberculosis uh, across the street with such tenderness and, and care. And then on the other hand, you know, she was yeah. sort of a ball buster, like right, exactly. get out of my way and uh, totally. don't stop her and uh, don't try to slow her down. Um, oh. I'll say this, like the, the things that we learn from all of our mentors are um, less the, the words they tell us and more how we watch them live. That's right. And uh, so, you know, I watched her and five times a day along with the other sisters, they would stop for, for prayer, for adoration, mm-hmm. for mass, for, for, for solitude, silence, and stillness. And of course, they say like Calcutta, that's interior solitude, silence, yes. and stillness. And, and what that taught me was, you know, all the years that I, I was around her and, and all the work that I, I, I did in, in India, I used to think, man, they have to pray. They have to pray five times a day to support wow. their efforts. But I think it dawned on me, you know what? Mm-hmm. They built their lives around practice and right. the work is simply the fruit of the practice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's oh. something I'm still trying to, to sort of internalize to, to really that sort is, of that's gorgeous. live into the responsibility of that, that witness. Absolutely. And I think that's how you are instructing us. I think that's how you're leading us home. I, um, I so deeply appreciate the authenticity of turning us still and silent and inward and to, into prayer. Um, it, it just, it feels so truthful and it feels, um, healthy and as hard as all of that is for me, I know that that's the work. 
I know that's in front of me. And it's, it's really exciting to think about what lies on the other side of that. Um, Cause honestly, I don't know. I've never done any of this work before. I've just lived out of the caricature of me, you know, mm. the one that I just assumed was true and built a life upon. Um, and so I'm not there yet. I'm still near the beginning of this, but I look so forward to feeling free in those spaces where I'm bound and allowing other people to be free as well. I think that's a big part of it. Um, so let me ask you three quick questions. These are questions we're asking every guest in the new beginning series. So um, we've obviously talked a lot about figuring out who, who we are in the context of the Enneagram. Can you just tell the listeners about any time in your life, and it could be, this could be big or small, um, where you just made like, boom, a 180 degree turn in your life. You just, you completely blew something up and started over. Well, I, I feel like that's every day. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, oh my gosh. And I, and I think that's what the Instagram shows us is that every, every day, the, the, the sort of loop that we're stuck in this passion fixation is, um, is, is, is what we have to, to, to come to terms with, what we have to own, what we have to lament and grieve, what we have to confess. And, and then eventually what we have to have a sense of humor about, you know, like yes. you said, like, you know, getting to getting to work, doing the hard work of, of our, of our, our, our contemplative practice can be intimidating. Well, we're not going to be good at it. In fact, it's yeah. just practice. Like if you're a little, sorry, I hate to say this, but if your little kid's play a sport or musical instrument, I don't want to watch them practice and I don't want to hear them practice. But if there's a match or a game or a recital or a show, sure, I'll be there. That's exciting. Uh, it's practice. We're going to be bad at it. It's practice. Like it, we're, 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 It's okay to get it wrong. And, um, and so every day I, yeah. I have to watch my, my passion fixation loop. I have to watch myself. Yep. Overdoing it again, beating myself for overdoing it again. And every day I have yeah. to, to sort of reset on I'm not very good at these practices. 20 years later, I'm not very good at these practices. I actually appreciate you saying that. Thank you for taking some of the gravity off a little. So it's okay to sort of fail, uh, fail forward, if you will, as we do this work. I mean, if you're still having to do this 20 years in, um, then it's, it's actually, uh, it takes some pressure off to not imagine that, well, this is going to be a six week process yeah. <laughs> or whatever, whatever time frame of three loves to put on things with deadlines. <laughs> That's um, true. Actually. So I thank you for saying, I know it is. I like endings. I like completion. I like, this is what happened. These are our measurables. Um, so I, I, again, just the, the mere practice yeah. of it all yeah. is good for me and blows up a lot of my, um, sort of my things that I'm conditioned to, to value. So, okay, here's the next question. So we're talking about new beginnings, new year. Um, do you have anything at all in your life that you personally kind of want to tackle in 2018 to work on, do better, try, attempt, uh, yeah. go somewhere? All, all of it. In particular, the last couple of years working on this, this book has been really hard for me of just sort of seeing That's what's it. been unearthed in my own sort of having to come to terms with, with telling myself the truth about my illusions, my lies, my, my addictions to these, these passion and, and, and fixation loops. So it's, uh, it's been a, it's been a little bit of a tough go this, this past fall too. Cause I, I've been doing a bunch mm -hmm. of these Enneagram workshops and it's like, man, you know, this, every time you, you, you share some of this stuff, you're, you're sharing it to yourself. And um, totally. so I, 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 in 20, in 2018, I, I, I pray for the courage to keep 
at this process of of excavating essence. That's good. I, I know that there's a lot to be done. And last question, uh, another one of my favorite teachers. You probably love her too. She's sort of in your world, um, Barbara Brown Taylor. Mm. Um, she asked a great question that I love. Uh, what's saving your life right now? Oh. It could be anything. It could be coffee. Oh. It, it could be Jesus. It could be whatever well, you say. I am uh, embarrassed to say this, but uh, we got a we we got a rescue dog last year. And my yeah. wife says that uh, he's rescued us. And uh, Basil, I love. I, 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 it's funny to even use this word, but I, I love this dog. Like, no, it's not. It's funny. like all he has is us, and yes. all he reminds me to do is be in the present moment, and yes. uh, and to be. Listen, kind. all of us who love animals understand what you're saying right now. He is a sweetheart, and. Uh, I, I mean, love it. I love that Basil is saving your life right now. Yeah, that's weird. It's a little weird to say that. It's not weird at all. It's fabulous. <laughs> um, okay, oh, so Chris, <laughs> thank you just for your kindness, for the gift of your time and your knowledge today. So, so helpful. I, half the time I was... I wasn't even prepared to ask you the next question because I was just listening so hard to what you were saying. I couldn't even think of where we were in the in the scope of the interview. So um, thank you for who you are and this, this work that you're bringing to bear in the world. It's so useful to so many of us. And um, I will have all your links, links to your books, link to your spaces, your favorite sites on the Enneagram over on my website. So thanks for your time today. I'm just so grateful. Well, thanks so much. And and hopefully some of this has been helpful. And yep. if there's anybody out there listening, who's just getting started, uh, it's, it's a long, slow, undramatic, and mundane path back yep. back home. So so be patient and compassionate with yourself, and and really learn learn to find a sense of humor uh, about about yourself. Perfect. On that note, we'll wrap it up. Okay. Thank, thank you, and you. have a fabulous day, Chris. You too. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. So good, right? Gosh. I wish you guys could have seen me during that conversation, just kind of sitting here, glazed over, listening to all of Chris's really smart words, um, just like a student, like a student who's mesmerized by a really, really good teacher. Uh, I'm so grateful for Chris. What a, what a, what a gift he is um, to those of us who really, really want to work on some of the darker parts of our of our, just our character and our behaviors. And it's just time to excavate and, and really finally, once and for all, address some of the same places where we just circle the drain, circle the drain, circle the drain. So the Enneagram is such a fabulous tool. Um, guys, over on my website, jenhammaker.com, I'm going to have all this up everything, all the links that Chris talked about, links to his book um, and to his website um, and, and some other goodies around the Enneagram that might be useful to you if you are sort of kicking the tires of the Enneagram for the first time, or if you're all the way deep in and you just can't get enough one way or another, it'll all be over there for you. So you guys, thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. Thanks for always downloading this podcast and giving us such great feedback. We care so much about everything you have to say. And I think this series is just fabulous. We are bringing you some of the best guests, you guys, who really are great teachers and masters to help set our feet on 
the path of new beginnings this year in a hundred different ways. And so come back next week because we just continue with some really fabulous content that I think you're going to find useful and inspirational. I can't wait to bring it to you. Okay, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for your reviews. Thanks for subscribing. Um, All that is so great for podcasts. And I am so, so, so grateful. Okay. Have a great week, everybody. See you next time. Thanks for joining us today on the For the Love podcast. Tune in next week when we sit down again with Jen and friends to chat about all the things we love. We love you, our listeners. So we want to be sure you subscribe to For the Love with Jen Hatmaker via iTunes or your favorite podcast provider so you don't miss a thing. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review. To become a part of Jen's online community, visit jenhatmaker.com and sign up for her newsletter. It's full of all the things you love, including free stuff. We love free stuff. Thanks for listening and see you next time on For the Love with Jen Hatmaker.